if you do not feel you have something to add or something to give to the world that you're entering, then it is very hard to feel that you're actually as part of that community at all. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Fabian Rivers. Fabian is an exotics vet, TV personality, social activist, and philosopher. Hailing from Birmingham in the United Kingdom, Fabian, also known as Dreddy Vet, took a path less traveled to becoming a vet by undertaking his training in the Czech Republic. So why did he go overseas to study? The answer perhaps sheds some light on why there is such a glaring mismatch between the ethnic diversity of our general population and the ethnic diversity of our profession. As an applicant from the black community, Fabian found time and again doors in the UK close to him that in all probability would have been wide open to others. Thankfully for us all, he was not to be denied and his perseverance and courage saw him graduate in 2018. Since then, he's made an impressive impact. Fabian works in exotics medicine and is a tireless campaigner on his favorite topics of mental health, racism, plus new graduate and student welfare. 2020, a year of hell for many, saw his star rise further. Firstly, winning the BVA Young Vet of the Year Award for exam exemplary contribution to the vet community and also landing a presenting role on the hugely popular Pets Factor children's TV show. Now, before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the VetEx Thrive community. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter or burnout, then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken or a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the VetEx community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills training course where members receive teaching, toolkits, and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. Join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better by visiting vetexinternational.com and learning more about the class today. Now back to the show. We see the violent and sickening side of racism plastered across our news feeds. But what perhaps escapes our attention is the huge missed opportunity to create a genuinely inclusive profession. Fabian is a shining example of what we might have lost were it not for his determination. The question is how many other talented people have been denied this chance? How much brilliance have we missed out on as a result? And what work must we now do to make things fair and inclusive? Because if you believe that opening up opportunities for all today is a key part of creating a better society tomorrow, then doing nothing is not an option. This episode was an education that gave me a lot to consider. So sit back and let the awesome Dr. Fabian Rivers take us on a journey with a frequently lighthearted touch about a deadly serious topic. So it's great to have Dr. Fabian G.P. Rivers Esquire on the show. (laughs) I'm throwing them all in there. Welcome to the show, Fabian. I'm super excited for our conversation today. There's a lot of ground to cover, and I'm hoping that our interwebs hold up great. We're both in the United Kingdom, so we're both on sensible time zones. Well, sensible for us. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's it's such a pleasure. You know, 2020 was one hell of a year. For I I don't remember a more crazy year in my existence, actually. For so many reasons, it was just, it was emotionally insane. Yeah. I'm careful about how much time I spend on social media, but it was hard with everything that was going on not to spend time on it. 
mm. uh, a bit more. And I think because of the nature of the conversations that were happening and probably long, long overdue happening, you know, I just started picking up, I think, other people and, mm. and you were showing up on my feed a lot, <laughs> <laughs> unsurprisingly. But I really liked what you're putting out there um, for all manner of reasons and principally because I think that you give less of a shit about what people think of you than many others and you're very, very values and ethics led. So this is a great conversation which I'm super happy to have. Let's get one of the the more esoteric questions out of the way to start <laughs> with because you posted something the other day and so at the risk of upsetting everybody in Australia and vegans all over the world, it's the Vegemite versus Marmite. <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> Outrageous. Look, you could do a whole hour's podcast on me ranting about Vegemite, but I think there's there's a lot more value to be had, but outrageous. It deserves to be in one place, and that is not in any uh, edible food section, put it that way. <laughs> so you know, I'm getting the sense that actually it's both in that case. Like it's Vegemite and Marmite go in the bin as far as you're concerned. I think one of my earliest memories, and this is no joke, one of my earliest memories is me maybe three years old in a kind of a toddler's chair eating my first ever experience of Marmite and gagging. So I have a very <laughs> deep emotional connection with anything in that category and it took me a good 10 years to open up the world to Vegemite which is also I have a lot of words for it but I would compare it to licking an old musty carpet that's kind of how I feel about it <laughs> I'm not sure that I wouldn't prefer to lick an old musty carpet because I was okay with Marmite and then I went to Australia and lived there for seven years and so I Vegemite was it became a thing which I, I wasn't okay with that and then I, I think because you're in a place you get a bit more okay with it mm. and I, so I, I I think I was having a nostalgia moment for my time in Oz and I walked into a shop and I saw Vegemite I was like oh you never see Vegemite so I bought a bottle of, you know like a tub of this stuff and I, I put it on a, a bit of bread or toast or something and I tried it and I I did I, did, I gagged <laughs> I, said, I thought what and I thought, well, actually, when you think about where this comes from, why would you even put it in your mouth in the first place? <laughs> Let's scrape out the bottom of these big... <laughs> it's just, it's a big joke on vegans. It's just one of those things that you look back in time and think, how did you ever decide this was a good idea? Like, who bumped heads and thought, you know what, let's make a product that's going to sell. Uh, whoever that is, however it started, I need to have words with your you know, distant ancestors and we need to have a you know a back and forth about that because it is vile. I'm sorry, I will put that in that it is vile. <laughs> it's, so I like it. I like it. There's it's just a it's neither. Vegemite, Marmite in the bin. Gone. Right. Controversial opinion to kick off with. So <laughs> we're just let's say just trash both both sides of the, the debate. I love it. Right. So Fabian, I want to talk about, I think the first place to get into is, you know, your journey into veterinary medicine is insane. I mean, it's epic. So can you describe, you put a lot of work to get to where you are right now. Can you talk us through, just I think back, the, the story, like the journey itself, 
why you started it in the first place. Let's go there. I mean, these conversations always end up about your the origin of of where it and what it means to be a vet. And I guess I always tell people that it, it starts off in the exact place that most vets, not all, but most vets start with this affinity to animals, this connection to the raw ideals of, of wanting to help, enjoying being outside, enjoying spending time with your dog, knowing that there are things that you can do to help and, and things of that, that kind of ilk. And it was no different for me. And I loved, you know, your, your Attenborough shows and I loved your, you know, natural history museums and, and all of those things which I recognise in so many other of my peers. And so as I grew through primary school, I guess everyone else has this idea that, you know, being a vet has an, a very a, a kind of emotional attachment to it. So when you're young, so many people want to be vets. They want to be the fireman. They want to be Bob the Builder. <laughs> it doesn't take any particular form at that particular point you just have ambitions you like animals it makes sense and so my approach up until about the age of about 12 13 was very much in that line with everyone else and I guess I recognized myself that there was nothing else at that age I wanted to do at that particular point things start to get serious because we unfortunately in this world we always put this emphasis on being 13 and having to choose subjects and having to be, you know, these are things that are going to make up the rest of your life. And also at that particular venture point, that crossroads, other people start to give you their own thoughts about how realistic this particular world is for you. And it was at that particular point, I realized so much about how I was seen and the likelihood of my position in the veterinary world. And I realized there was actually a, a huge chasm between the veterinary world that everyone sees on, you know, the James Herriots on TV and where I was. So for everyone who doesn't know, I'm a, you know, a inner city Birmingham boy, you know, at the time of being 30, my Birmingham accent was so thick, you know. Uh, I'm somewhat disappointed <laughs> that it's gone. <laughs> it is. I've had to learn the ways. I'm telling you what, for the global audience listening, I think probably, luckily, my Scottish accent isn't so thick anymore and your <laughs> Brummie accent isn't because goodness only knows what people in America would have thought of that. Uh, they would just think, You know what I mean, Mike? So back when I was 13, <laughs> um, I just thought very much was amazing. No, it, but just for everyone who's listening as well, the Brummie accent, I will have to say, was voted the most unintelligible accent in the UK <laughs> for about three or four years. In and it's row. got competition. It's got competition. Like it, we're, we're not really high on the scales of intelligence here. So I had to do something more, mainly because of my mom saying, look, you're not going outside talking like that. So get it together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think coming back to my approach and where I stood, as I grew older and grew more passionate for the type of thing I wanted to do, which was only be a vet, the greater the hurdles became and the resistance wasn't necessarily about the academia side. It was about how I presented as an individual going into that. And that's where the main doubt from came from. It came from, you know, at all parts, it was, you know, careers advisors or science teachers or 
people who were in veterinary medicine. I was always constantly being told how hard it was to get into veterinary medicine, which it is. But you start to recognize when some of your peers want to do similar careers, whether it's medicine or dentistry or pharmacy, and the type of things that they're feeling and they're connecting to doesn't resonate in the same way. Now, for those who don't know, I went to three different secondary schools, the worst grammar school on the planet, as in it was it was the Ofsted report was was so damning that they they were this close. They were centimeters away from losing their grammar school status. It was that bad. And then I went to a boarding school, which was a complete huge seismic change culturally because it was in the black country, which is unfortunately a very demographically similar area, which is not the demographics that I represent. So ironically titled, you might say. (laughs) Very racist very old school and it's funny because those particular places were heralded as centers for inclusivity and diversity and I feel like so much about the learning in that particular sphere was you know there was was so much acceptance about whether you uh, presented as someone different or your sexuality was different but when it came to race I was quite regularly left astray and left lacking for any type of support, to be honest with you. And so, and my experience outside of that, in the boarding school, when you go out to different areas, it was kind of constant. Can you give us a sense of what that actually manifested as mm. and how that would affect you along the, along the route? Sure. I think I was very fortunate to have guiding in my own mom, who, you know, when we talk about the support systems that people have in place, When it comes to issues, I was very blessed to have someone who not only understood how the mechanisms of race, but also was, she's basically a counsellor. And she's not only a counsellor, but she's an education counsellor, she's a child counsellor, she's a marriage counsellor. And so she has a lot of breadth on how to support me through those feelings of, do I deserve to be here, basically? And... So when I'm coming home from a situation where someone has called me this or said this or, you know, used my, weaponized my race to put me in a certain situation, I always had someone to talk through how and why people arrive at that. And ultimately, her way of saying that to me is that there is these particular ways that people want to create difference in you, especially at this young age. But ultimately, you're living this life and you are not your culture, you are not your race. These are all subsidiaries to who you are as a person. And only you have that opportunity to live your life because, you know, and if you want to be a vet, the passion and desire for it is, you know, you can get there basically. So I always had that that sense of support. And I think that was very important for how I managed it. Okay, so you've got this early sort of foray into a world which where you're already feeling yeah. resistance or you know there there is resistance i you know i interviewed mandisa green and one of the things that she said mandisa is the she's the first black president of the royal college of veterinary surgeons here in the united kingdom and in a lot of ways i mean just an incredible landmark moment mm. because she's young black female Mm-hmm. Not three things you associate with the president of any of the associations in the United Kingdom. Oh. I think that's that's remarkable for lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. There's a sidebar question about there because I feel like 
you would be better explaining why that is remarkable than I. But one of the things that she said, which I'd like to keep us on your journey to start with, was that the importance of role models goes very, very, it's almost something you, you, know, you take it for granted. It's just something that, you know, people like me, i.e. white men have in abundance. So that's clearly a, a massive input. But at your stage where you're feeling resistance, mm. what was it that, that kept you on the pathway to getting you where you are? What did you have to do to overcome that? I think I always, at a very young age, had an ability to compartmentalize how I saw the world around me. And I'm not sure if that was inherent. I'm not sure if it was a mix of a genetic side or something because my mom helped cultivate that in me or I was just particularly aware of the world around me didn't present to everyone in the same way. And you know what, my brother is is really into, you know, philosophy and things like that. So I, I always had people around me who were giving me different takes on what we just accept. And so I guess that led me very at a very early age, considering things could be different for other people. And so what I galvanized my my journey was a sense that I have an opportunity to do something I'm passionate about. And if it takes me 50 years and I never get there, at least I tried. And I think this deep burning sense of not a, a need to be a vet, but a need to be connected to something that I'm passionate about. And I think when we melt down all these other reasons why you can't get there, whether it's financial, whether it's how you look, whether it's whether you're a disability, whether you don't have any role models, whether it's a you know, cultural thing. When you melt down to it, I'm very much of the opinion that you can still be an individual within that sphere. And even if I am all these things which say I'm going to probably be this, this and this, I may present in a completely different way and that's completely okay. Hmm. So, you know, you're going through school Take us on a journey into the, the veterinary component of that. <laughs> so, because I, that feels like there's maybe a bit of a, a story here. Yeah, there's plenty, of course. Now, <laughs> there's two sides to that, that veterinary world. Now, I, I mean, we have the academia side and having that resistance. And I was a person, as you may be aware, who's just, I don't try too hard to be anything. I'm very much, I feel, it's, and it's very fashionable now. I'm very authentically me, but I genuinely feel that I have so much space just to do however I want, as long as it's relatively professional and I'm not, you know, disregarding someone else. So that sense of me has been there for a very long time. So going into the retinue field where you do see this very similar tropes about how we manage certain things and going into work experience in particular was the only time I really felt connected to a work experience is when I went to South Africa, to be honest with you. And I went to South Africa for eight weeks to work with African penguins, as you do, because obviously I couldn't do going into just of any old vet clinic. I had to travel all the way to South Africa to do it. And I loved that experience because I absolutely felt integral to the, the process. I was volunteering and I was working five days a week, nine to five, and effectively, I was helping rehabilitate all sorts of different birds. But I was in a place where I felt connected to what I was doing. I felt 
you know, part of it. And some of the earlier parts of my work experience in the UK, I felt like I was sometimes a nuisance. I worked in a, a, a rescue centre where for pretty much the best part of two weeks, they asked me to mop. And I worked in a vet clinic where they asked me to clean out the staff fridge. I And whilst seeing other vet students and people who were in similar parts to me being able to stand in theatre rooms or, you know, do other things around animals where I, so I realised I was, you know, cleaning, basically. This is work experience pre-vet school or at yeah. vet school? Pre-vet school. Pre-vet school, pre-vet right. School. So, you know, wow. I, I was doing all sorts of things where repeatedly I was seeing a gap not always, but quite often enough to that I realised the types of things my friends who were doing vet experience, you know, we, we all connect, you know, when even before vet school, there were forums and things like that. But I realised I was being exposed to things which made me realise something was up. And, you know, the only positive re- experiences I had in, you know, in, in their entirety were ones where I was working for charity. So I worked for a charity urban farm and because they need hands on, there was no, you know, they just get stuck in. We need you because, and, and so I ended up becoming, and this followed all the way through into to vet school. Most of my experience was done at the PDSA because in a charity situation, they need you. There's no way that they can go, well, actually you do this and you do that. Like we need you. You're basically a nurse the moment you walk through the door. And so my veterinary understanding as my understanding of systemic ways of managing race or, or class, I realized as time and I matured with that, the types of things that I was being exposed to, if I wanted to make this work, I had to change the way I approached it because the system wasn't going to change for me. That was really the, the veterinary aspect. And then I had an opportunity. So when I, I finally got to the, the veterinary world, and by a mean, this is going into to vet uni. I had the opportunity to study in the UK and I had a gap year. I got some experience. I did some working. I saved up, you know, because I wanted to make sure that I had a break after my A-levels. And um, when the opportunity came up to work, to, to go to uni in the UK, I, had, I obviously had four choices and three of them said no, just straight off the bat. And the other one was, was filled with a bunch of conditions and then I had the opportunity to study in the Czech Republic. What were the conditions? What were the conditions? Uh, basically, it was the year when the £3,000 went to £9,000. And so yeah. I was told I was in the 0.5% where they were struggling to accommodate me. And I was on some basically like a, you know, a, a waiting list of some sort. And effectively, I was already so tired by that process. They said, look, we will put you into some system. If you do an undergrad connected to our university, we will give you uh, basically, an, not a guarantee, but a very strong position. If you get a 2-1, that you'll get a very strong chance of coming back into university. It was really roundabout. And then they said also, you, you or you can wait on this waiting list to get an opportunity to go into to veterinary medicine with no guarantee. And that already was just i was you know i guess crestfallen is a word right but you had the grades right your grades were equivalent to everybody else's grades right i had the grades i had you know at that time there was a huge amount of competition about how many weeks work experience but when i talked about the diversity of my work experience i had everything ticked off 
And I had a huge diversity of experience. It wasn't just, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here. I was very much, on, I've, I was abroad for eight weeks. I worked in this vendor clinic. I've been to several laboratoires. So, you know, I had the diversity of experience, which at least covered all the bases that, as far as I knew, were well and good enough above the lowest, you know, uh, acceptance rate anyway. And what were the interviews at the schools like? You know, were, did you feel fairly treated in those moments? I think I did. And I think the one thing that was mostly, I think there was one interview, and obviously this is, this is all names not disclosed, of course. But of I, course. There, was, there was one interview I had. I had two interviews. And, you know, one of them, I felt there was natural resistance. But I guess it's very hard to say when, you've, when you're a vet student, whether that's natural or not, because you're in an interview experience. So. I think I'd be hard pushed to say there was anything greater than that, but also other people's experiences are completely different. And I also know that there are many situations where I've heard someone knows someone who works at, went to this uni who knows someone who's an interviewer. But again, I, I can't disclose from word of mouth. And the other interview was absolutely fine. But the, the thing is about that other interview is that I felt I did really well. Yeah. And that was ironically the place where I was in the 0.5% or whatever percentage it was where they were still unsure how they were going to fit me into the, the system because they kind of wanted me, but they kind of didn't. And it was, I was whatever. Mm. And so by that time, as you probably can imagine, I was on my absolute feet, uh, you know, on my knees even, exhausted with this process of doing something that I'm really passionate about. And when you reach that point, and you realize nothing about your approach to veterinary medicine or the thing that you're connected to more than anything else, you don't want to do anything else. You realize that nothing about your approach has been, con- and nothing about your approach has been conventional. You start to see things very differently because if you have dedicated yourself to getting to a particular point and it's not happening for you, how am I going to make this work? And so applying to the Czech Republic was Initially, at least, another thing that gave me, I didn't really even take it seriously initially because I really backed myself to have an opportunity in the UK. That's the first thing. But also beyond that, when the opportunity came up, I actually felt relief about having, about the opportunity presented to me. And then I had a friend who was doing dentistry out in, in the Czech Republic and I realized that there would be absolutely no issues with it. And that the way that it was, it's dedicated vet uni. It was in the middle of the city. And so I started doing the, the maths, you know, the equations in my head. And then I did some more research into the university because I knew that it did small animals and I knew it was good for equine. And, I, and then I found out that it was really good for exotics. And then I started to look into how the course was fixed and how it was different to the UK. And, and, ironically it started to feel like the best option out of all of them for me and I realized and my mom was I remember this conversation with my mom very well and she said you've never done anything straightforward you've never done be honest and she said this to me you've never done anything straightforward you've never done anything in a straight line but look how determined you are because of all of those situations and look how you've You've continued to be committed to something when faced with question marks after question marks after question marks, whether it's the idea of your potential as a future vet 
whether it's realistic, whether you're going to get the grades, whether, you know, whatever it was. And I, I, up until that point, I'd managed some way or, or, or other to get to that point where I, I was able, based on all the, the metrics, to be able to get into veterinary medicine. And I was still struggling. And whereas the approach for when you go to Europe, it's very much, do you have the grades, you know, and where are you on that grade scale? You have an entry test, which is based on chemistry, physics, biology, and also some, some reasoning. And basically the highest scores get in. And I did that test. They said, we will definitely have you. And it felt like vindication for the types of things that I needed at the time and I had a quick interview but really it's the Czech Republic and those kind of hate to say it those kind of countries where it's ex-communist and it's very much like you know the science you know the the functional stuff you've done it we're good there's less of that are you suitable and do you have the it's like can you do it and you know you can come basically and so by the time I had that, oh, should I go into an undergrad and do biomedical sciences and then do this? Or should I go into zoology and see how I feel about it? Or should I, should I, should I? By that time, I was, I was very ready. And I went. And um, I mean, no, the rest isn't history, of course. The Czech Republic is two halves. And by two halves, I mean, is there's, there's the uni experience and then there's the cultural experience. And so that changed things. I was going to ask about that because <laughs> communist countries, for all the institutional, would you describe it as racism? It sounds like it sounds like inherent, you know, minimally biased. But let's call it what it actually is. If whether it's, I mean, it's, uh, there is intentional. Yeah. There's intention there. The system has been set up. You're, you're, the game's not set up for you to win. No, I think. I mean, this is a slightly different point, and I, I will touch on this, and maybe we can circle back around to it a little bit later. But yeah, the, my main issue with how we get university students or people who are connected to veterinary medicine into universities is without them realizing or realizing it is wrong, and it is wrong for the main issue that they do not know how to say everyone is allowed an opportunity to get in without appreciating the type of journey they took to get there and so saying very on a very blanket a blank slate saying we don't care if you're this we don't care if you're that we don't care if you're rich we don't care if you're poor does not address the fact that if you are this and if you are this you have access to certain opportunities that others don't yeah like that you're still not taking account of what's being presented to you because there's so many barriers further upstream to that actually occurring. Yeah. And so that is kind of my loose take on that, but let's rewind a little bit back to. Yeah. So the Czech Republic and you're going to say like not renowned in those countries for being terribly tolerant of anything other than the way. Yeah. Which I take a, a big big stab in the dark <laughs> that you're not the way as they see it tell me about that experience so the kind of eastern bloc ex-communist countries there is a huge cultural shift i guess in a way that we would describe say gen z versus boomers for example but even greater in the Czech Republic. and so you have these remnants of communist thinking 
and communist thinking in the latter part of you know the Soviet era is very much steeped in bureaucracy. You have this bureaucratic nature which is just so part of Czech life. You can't you can't walk across the street with having to sign a paper and give it to someone else who won't get back to you in three months. Who you know you just cannot. There is paperwork everywhere. But also the cultural understanding of that is that, you know, communists, communism in itself is, you know, the idea of it is very much that everyone is allowed to have a certain place. But your, your identity is somewhat assigned to the wider political sphere of that. Right. But when you have such diversity in the Czech Republic, for people who don't know, has a very has always been under something else, whether it's a a Soviet or an Austro-Hungarian empire, it's always been in an empire of some sort. It's never had identity. So as a result, now you have this high-powered nationalism and not type of nationalism where it's like, we are European, it's we are Czech and everyone else who isn't Czech, whether even if you're, you know, Austrian or German, it's a problem. And so... The Czech Republic recently came out, maybe in the last three or four years, was the second most xenophobic place on the planet after Saudi Arabia. And so it's less, I would say, the, the, the overt types of racism that I encountered there were not necessarily steeped in the fact that I was black, but because I was not Czech, <laughs> basically. Mm. Now, the racism is definitely part of it, but it's, it's, it takes a different form. And what also is so important about the type of racism that I experienced, it's very blunt and it's very open. And it's very, I knew where I was placed in the Czech Republic. So if I wanted to go somewhere at, that I knew was racist, I would just avoid it because I was either accepted or I was not because Czech people do not mince their words at all. As weird as it sounds, it's very manageable to work around a place where you know where you stand. I guess when the, the borders become blurred and the gray areas become greater, that's when it's very difficult. So I had a time where I kept myself to myself. I operated in spaces that the majority of the time were absolutely fine. And culturally, I had a, a, a pretty smooth process. I just wasn't able to have many experiences with lots of different cultures unless they were in within a university setting. And then... You know, there's there's so much more to that because I would argue that my understanding of of ethnicity and race is, is probably a little bit ahead of many other people's. And so those type of conversations where that becomes discussed, I would probably just withdraw myself from because I tended to end up doing all the work, basically. Yeah, or possibly wanting to headbutt a wall <laughs> at some yeah. of the views you might have been getting hurt back. If we're being less if we're being less politically correct <laughs> about it, yes, you know, uh, just the temptation to throw sharp objects at people would be uh, something on the back of my mind. Quite a lot of these conversations, and you know, uh, and so effectively, that was my cultural experience. The academic experience, however, was perfect for me, and the reason why it was perfect is because it was like if you don't know it, you will fail. If you do know it, you will pass. There was so much less theatre than the types of experiences that I'd understood from my time in the UK in very sixth form. It, was, it wasn't it was who I was. It was like, well, if you don't know it, you can leave my room. 
and it's very sink or swim. And for someone who's faced challenge after challenge after challenge, it was somewhat refreshing to at least just be seen as a, yeah, to be seen as, a, as an individual who knew it or didn't. Yeah, and that's the sense, which is really interesting to hear that, that it's not that the work's hard or easy, it's just that you knew what the work was and what the standard was, whereas it sounds like in the UK and in life leading up to that point, there were goalposts, but they were invisible. And, and so knowing exactly what the rules of the game are yeah, and those rules potentially being changed around you. That was it. Could that you was, ever be good enough? That was it. If you don't know where you stand, how do you progress? If you don't know if someone has an inherent dislike of you, how do you navigate around that? You may see them as one thing and they're, they're, they're presenting as something completely different. And I wouldn't say that it was easy because very medicine by design is not easy. You know, I think there's plenty of horror stories and I, I used the word sink or swim in my university experience because it was sink or swim. And I know a lot of people, unfortunately, that did sink. And the Czech Republic isn't well renowned for its types of support. It is, you are good enough or, you're, or you failed. And I guess that side of it was difficult for a lot of people, but I think by then I'd had enough life experience to really be understood about who I was an individual and how to support myself. Really, all I wanted was an opportunity to show that I could learn that information and get through the process. And so this really comes back around to where Dreddy Vet started. And Dreddy Vet started after my first year of uni. Because you, as you can imagine, probably now that I've spent so long trying to get into veterinary medicine, trying to have a chance, I completely devoted my entire life to making sure I got great grades, that I was doing every extra course, you know, you name it, I was doing it. There was points where I only had two anatomy uh, classes in a week. I would go three or four times to the, you know, for extra practicals. I would join other people's classes. I was doing everything. And so by that time that that year finished, I had pretty much, you know, straight A's, you know, minus a couple of things. I was one of two people, actually, who didn't fail a thing in the first year. We had so many tests and credits. I was only one of two who didn't fail anything. And I remember in particular, and I tell this story because it's so important to me. I just finished my last exam in histology. I just got an A. I'd come home and I exhausted myself so much. I sat in my room, in my flat even, and ate Subway for three days straight. And I pretty much was sat on a sofa eating Subway, watching TV with this blank malaise, you know, just I was completely out of tune of life. And if you asked me what happened in those days, apart from eating Subway and watching a TV show, which I don't remember, I couldn't tell you. And when I came out of that, that slumber, that dream world, I said to myself, what was this for? What was this for? You've done all of this and all you have to show for it is you've got grades and you've passed first year. And I realized that who I was as a person needed to have a different approach to the veterinary community and veterinary medicine that felt more connected to something that was part of me. Because, you know, no one's going to ask me when I graduate what you got in your anatomy exam. No one's going to ask you, oh, what did you get in your exam? You can't treat my dog. It doesn't work like that. And so 
seven days after that, I basically just took a lot of time out. I just went on a lot of walks and ate better. Subway didn't see me for a few months because of the idea of it made me sick. And I said, I want to create a space where I can feel like me, to be honest with you. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know whether I'm just going to talk absolute shit, but it's got to be a space where I feel genuine and I feel connected to. And um, that was the day I started Ready Vet, which is ironic because it's June the 15th, which was, again, two weeks after my my final exam. And I started Ready Vet and I made like a blog post on WordPress and said, this is my journey. I had my dog with me in the picture. And like, if, you, if anyone goes into a WordPress, which I haven't been on for many, many years now, but the very first post is a, is a selfie with my camera and my dog on my lap. Like, I don't like, this is the start of Dready Vet. And the idea of Dready Vet came from Dready Tennis, who is um, a very famous uh, uh, tennis player. And I liked who he was because he was in a, also a very typically white demographic, you know, field at that time as well. And, um, you know, he had these long dreads and he was a flair player and he was, you know, it wasn't always about who he was on the surface. He could have dreads, he could be black, he could be West Indian. And he was still talking about how tennis worked you know, and why he did well and why he, he didn't. And I love that sense that he could present like how I am right now. And it was only about, you know, it was only about the tennis. And so Dreddy Vet also, when I always think about it, you know, reviewing it, it was a way of creating a space to kind of make a point about my image. But when you actually get into what I'm talking about, it's nothing about my image at all. Because... I get to be Fabian, who's got dreads, who's got locks, and is black. But it's not, it's Dreddy Vet is actually nothing to do with Dreddy at all. I'm Fabian. And so that was like a revelation to me that I could simultaneously be proud of my culture and be proud of who I was as a presenting person, but also create a space that has absolutely nothing to do with, with who I am. And so I can talk about. I've spoken about topics which aren't related to race and I've, I've been able to do it. I've talked about business. I've spoken about feminism. I've spoken about a university. I've spoken about exotics. I, you know, I've, I've written reviews on poultry books. The idea that I was being reduced down to what I presented at didn't need to happen. So there's so many springboards to take from there, but yeah, I feel like it's going to be a 10 hour interview. You're holding a lot of things simultaneously. And that's something I see a lot of veterinarians struggling with is, we hold this thing that we're a veterinarian. And when we struggle with being a veterinarian, now we struggle with being, that's not just us struggling with work, it's struggling us with, with our existence at that point. But what I'm hearing from you is actually at a very early age, possibly shaped by the fact that you had to be this, and I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but I'm getting a sense when you've had to work this hard to get something that you know everybody else has been running uphill but you've been on this travelator run with the, the treads going against you and it's steeper so that builds a bit of resilience it's, to use your own language you know you're going to sink or swim and here you are having achieved in a very short space of time a remarkable amount of things but in one of those ways you're actually able to hold simultaneously inside of you you know your being you you've expanded your consciousness around who you are what you are the labels that 
and we all do have labels, I think, but you're not holding on to them too tightly and allowing yourself this dynamism or this nimbleness to be able to jump between subjects and transcend the the issues of you know specifically that you might otherwise end up being pigeonholed into. And I love that. But perhaps you'd speak to I do want to touch on this resilience because I think that's something that uh, I want to talk more about race. We're a long way from being done talking about that, but but there's this issue that you see around young vets of burnout that we're facing. What's in your experience, what's made you stronger and how do you maintain that positivity? Because I'm willing to bet that although we're talking in the past tense about things that's happened, you probably still face ongoing challenges every day because of your race, your history. Yeah. So I feel I have, let's find the right words for this. What makes me positive and what makes me motivated is the fact that I have done enough to be content with where I'm at. And so I always like to read lots of different books and have lots of different actual insights into who we are as individuals. What is the, the state, the reality of the world around us? And read lots of different thoughts about how we best approach that. But the one thing that I always try to do is not to be too objective about how that worldview is, is applied. And I think a lot of people will read a, I don't know, a, your typical self-care book or a philosophy book and say, right, this is how I'm seeing the world. Whether it's politics or not, this is what I'm applying to the world and this is how it always has to be. And I'm only going to read literature or invest in the idea from this idea henceforth. Whereas I feel like on aggregate, on average, there are lots of different things you can pick up from a lot of different spaces, whether they align to you or not, and kind of put that into a box where you get an essence of what works for you. And so when coming back to the idea of how I stay positive, the one thing that has made me understand the world better than anything is that first and foremost, that my place in the world is probably, not definitely, but probably when regards to everything that's happened, largely insignificant. I don't mean it's in the sense that you do not have value. What I'm saying is that my value is very much attached to myself as an individual and that I have an opportunity to do things that make me feel connected to the world around me. Whatever that is, I have an opportunity. But in the grand scheme of things, there is so much about the world and the universe around us that I have an opportunity to pay attention to nature and people and everything is an opportunity. And so my position in that is one very small piece of a huge bigger picture. So I can't take myself too seriously because who am I to be that important person? And I don't believe that at its root. But my relative significance is another idea that I have value and inherent worthiness, or which is the kind of the, the word that we're always talking about, our worthiness. Am I worthy? I've already done it. All I have to do is look at my past. I have overcome this. I have done that. I have done this. Whether or not I've got awards or not, whether or not I even remember it, it's happened. And so who I am as a person is in the past. And that is enough 
So every day is a bonus for me. I, like if I, I and I, I say this with the lightest intention, so I hope no one gets upset with me. If I was to fall down and die tomorrow, I would be content. I've reached this point in my life where I, the only thing I ever wanted to be was a vet. And the only thing I ever wanted to do was have an opportunity to be around animals. And the only thing I ever wanted to do was try and be as kind to as many people as possible. And I've done all of those. They're all done. You know, I, I don't need any more from life. And so everything is a bonus. And when you approach everything as a bonus, whether the opportunity comes, whether it doesn't, you do not feel hurt by that because it's not about, and people always say to me, you know, I can't tell you, honestly, the amount of time people say to me, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I go, I don't know. And like, why is that such a big part of how we value ourselves in society? Because I may not, I could genuinely, it sounds morbid again, I could walk in front of a bus tomorrow by accident, but does that mean I'm, the things I've overcome and the, the situations that I've faced and the experiences I've had are any less important? Well, no, because they've happened and they are important by design. So that is how I stay positive because there's, the positivity has already happened. The beauty of my journey has already happened. So I don't need to be you know, too het up about anything that happens in the future because I have that reference point. And my value is inherent because of the past. The who I am is my past. And every time you interpret something, this whole conversation, as soon as we go back and review it, it is in the past. It is something that we can share. It is there. It is salient. And if, if in 60 years' time I get, you know, Alzheimer's, it still happened. You know, that for me is, is kind of my, my daily worldview. It reminds me not to take myself too seriously. It reminds me to give as many opportunities to be connected with people like yourself or you know, the student who doesn't know how to get into veterinary medicine or the student who left university. Because I say to yourself, well, you didn't finish veterinary medicine, but you bloody got there. Like, that's OK. Like, you're OK. That's OK. And so with regards to how race and things happen, I see it as like I have an opportunity. And this is where another side comes in. It's very much like a stoic we are part of a bigger picture, very Buddhist or whatever you want to call it. I have an opportunity to help give people the opportunities that I thought I might never have had. And so even if people do not get there, at least they have a helping hand. And I would rather the world be, no one has to think about whether the opportunity is possible but that they have the choice to decide what opportunities they take up. That would be the perfect world for me because I know that being here now is just great. Like I'm just so blessed to be able to, to have this opportunity. And again, the opportunity is important. It's not actually the, the physical being there. All those things keep me really, really positive and centered. I was getting a lot of, as you were talking yeah, I was really feeling the stoicism and mm. the, yeah, you, you mentioned both things, stoicism and Buddhism and, and, uh, and perhaps when we get to the short form questions, I, I might ask you about some books that you might have read to try and capture some of the learning if you, to set people off on, on a, a pathway there. I want to focus in because equality of diversity is just such a massive topic. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your sort of experiences to this point. There's two words that have been spoken about a lot, particularly coming up 
since George Floyd and all of the you know the things that have been unearthed and put central stage. But the, the words sort of white privilege and, and also fragility are subjects that I'm interested just to look at that in the context of veterinary medicine. And perhaps the sort of gateway question into exploring that a little bit more in the context of everything you've said, because some of it feels like you've actually, by describing your experience, you've started to shine a light on that for me just by talking about it. But I wonder, how would you make veterinary medicine work better for people? And can you enlighten us as to, you know, I, I think we could be fairly clear on, on what white privilege means, but what are we not clear on that we need to be clear on? How do we go about making the profession more accessible and more diverse? And indeed, let's start with the, the confronting topic. Why do we have to do that? So uh, see lots of different things to, to consider there. I think the veterinary profession is an arm of society. And I think that connection needs to be consistent. And I think so much about, you know, what we're saying, Mandisa was saying with regards to diversity and role models, seeing yourself is something that resonates, but it resonates to a certain point. And I would say the reason why it resonates to a certain point is because just because you see someone in a position which you look up to doesn't mean necessarily that person is a good vessel for that change. And that's why I am more keen to say diversity and inclusion or representation and inclusion, because inclusion signifies to me inclusivity in the types of conversations that we're having. And there have been many, many, many people in positions of power in the veterinary community, in the grand scheme of things, in a political sense, who haven't necessarily been the best vessels for change. And so I'm very keen to kind of stamp that in the ground at a start point. So much about this conversation is around diversity and representation and seeing yourself in the roles of the places you want to be. And I feel that is not only an important part but it's, it's the part that we're all discussing. We want to seize who we can be in the future in the roles that matter. But I also think that what's often missing is the idea of inclusion. And I think that's actually a much more important part of the debate. And the reason why it is so important is if you do not feel you have something to add or something to give to the world that you're entering, then it is very hard to feel that you're actually as part of that community at all. And my complete emphasis is that inclusion and diversity or representation and inclusion or however you want to put it, it cannot, it's indivisible because you, and we've, we've all seen it on so many different levels that, in society, you can have people who look like you, but do not represent the values that help support get you to the same point. And we need to stop at least heralding these different ways of saying, well, look, we have someone on a front cover, and yet our protocols for including you into 
this world are exactly the same, but look, we have someone in that particular particular world. Because it feels like, and I'll, I'll say the word, tokenistic to operate in a certain place as an individual, knowing that you're just going to be rolled out as a an, an example of how actually everyone having a, a quote-unquote equal and fair chance is okay. And so the idea of coming back to the idea of white fragility and privilege is really about opening the field and the forum to not only discuss so many topics from so many different views, but also that whether or not you are compassionate of that person's situation to get there and, you know, at least empathetic. And something I always talk about is the idea that empathy is a a one type of form of understanding how someone is, but compassion is the step up. It is the more involved version of, of empathy. So I'm always telling people to be compassionate, but even if you don't understand and you're not able to be fully compassionate or understand how someone is feeling or felt or their position in society has been, you know, at odds with how your interpretation of the world is that you give them an opportunity to share what they have felt and experienced up until that point. That is so important because if you are telling someone you value them and you value their critique and you value their position in society or their com- or the community, the Veterinary community is, is no different, then you have to at least give an opportunity to, to share what's going on for them. And unfortunately, I think in the veterinary community, as an arm of society, as a particularly white demographic, as a, uh, a society which is entrenched in the, the old forms of status and a certain amount of heralded position, you know, as, as practitioners and people of animals and all of that, we have this sense of ignorance and simultaneously arrogance about knowing things that we probably don't, we're not qualified to. And that is the biggest sense of resistance. And, that, you know, you see it all the time. You see it all the time. I'm, I'm constantly having to justify and defend other people, whether it's people who are, are you know, who, you know, are women or p- people from different, you know, who have different sexualities or who are people of colour. I constantly feel like I'm having to justify things which actually are a justification of, who they are intrinsically as people, which I often find very difficult because when a certain someone wants to challenge whether something's happening, especially when someone is saying to you, this is who I am, then you, what you are saying is that their, their experience is not valid and who they are as a person is not valid. And why are we at any point in life challenging the intrinsic nature of who people are? Why is that a debate? It's not like I've I've chosen to, I don't know, buy a new tracksuit and I'm saying that it's it's something else. You know, I am by design, for example, I am bisexual or I am black or I am, I've had these experiences as a result of that. These are facts. These are patent facts. And to challenge that is a direct challenge to the humanity of the person in front of you. And that is something that happens in veterinary medicine so much because we're intelligent people and because we have a position in society where people on average uh, listen to us, you know, and, you know, completely that people will come to me and, and give me their card and their, their pin code because they, 
they they haven't got their glasses that day. You know what I mean? There's a huge amount of trust. Right, right, yeah. There's a huge amount of trust in Vetney Worlds, but just because I trust you to to do life saving surgery on my animal doesn't mean and because you're an intelligent person who, you know, picks up the I don't know, the, the telegraph or the guardian twice a week doesn't mean you suddenly have a space to discuss very nuanced topics around things that don't relate to you. Yeah. And so those particular ways of managing those conversations is important. So yes, it is great to have people like myself, people like Mandisa, people like, you know, Thebe, who's part of uh, the BVEDS, which is the British Veterinary Ethnic and Diversity Society, you know, people who are very clearly non-presenting as the difference culturally or, eth- or ethnically than what we've come to expect from the veterinary community based on stereotypes or whatever but that is only one part of the puzzle how do we make the veterinary medicine an opportunity for everyone and a viable opportunity for everyone and not something that has hurdles based on the fact that you were born on a farm or you know someone who works at the Royal College you know what I mean these are all things that exist I think it comes down to this and it's always been this People who are from certain communities, and let's use white men because it's the very easiest one to reach for, but it's not just that. It's, it is, there's many different positions of privilege, let's just say that for argument's sake. But people who occupy those spaces do not want to be told that they haven't worked hard to get where they've, you know, they've, they've worked not as hard as other people. And I think that there is this sense that their worldview is that they have got there and they, are, they have an equal right to be there as much as anyone else, which no one is contesting. And I think that's where the resistance comes from. Well, I'm a white man or I'm a, a white woman and I've worked really hard to get here and I had all these hurdles in my way, you know, and no one is saying in any of these circles that you have not worked hard to be a vet. And that you should be proud of it. But the concept and the salient concept of that can exist, but someone else has also had to go through life with a huge element of resistance, of friction, of active and indirect you know, hurdles and had to jump through a bunch of rings you know, and, and have all this resistance that they've they've had their entire life. And it's been very hard for them to get to the same place that you you have. Those are two concepts that can exist right next to each other. But often people don't think that. So this is great. And thank you for sharing this and really painting it very clearly. Nobody is denying that somebody like me. Or me. Nobody, nobody or you. Right. But nobody... From this doesn't have to be about sides. Nobody's saying that my journey wasn't hard, but as we explored earlier, I didn't experience the travelator set against me on a steeper gradient, and that's really what needs to be recognised. And unfortunately, without that recognition, we are absolutely dismissing somebody else's reality, which then removes from us the option of yeah, like compassionately engaging, so that we see the situation for what it is, which is change is required. And so it disconnects us from the ability to then, or the desire to make the change happen that needs to happen. Fabian, what do we need to do 
and I, I'm conscious again of time, and but this is such an important question. What do we have to do? You know, we, we've started the conversation. That much is clear. But how do we get past this just being a moment, a little wave that washed over and, and passed by, and now there's the next one? So it actually becomes woven into the fabric from start to finish that people are included. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about how often I talk about the importance of networking and how that in itself is a privilege because I'm able to network with people that perhaps wouldn't respond an email if I looked, sounded, or behaved differently than I do. And that, again, there's lots of sort of yeah. know, light bulb things going off here in my head. So <laughs> firstly, thank you. But secondly, continue. Yeah. What we need to do is, first of all, oh, let's rewind. Be compassionate of people's humanity and reality. And you said it already, and I've said it already, but it needs to be start at the point that someone's expression of how they're feeling about a certain situation isn't an opportunity to present a rebuttal. It is an opportunity to consider why they have arrived at that position. And there's, there's a lot of psychology into how we present a situation which we find uncomfortable. And what happens in most of these conversations, we don't listen to anything really past the first 15 seconds. And then you apply that to social media where you can write drafts of what you're replying and read it over again and reinterpret and reinterpret and reinterpret. And you have all these different platforms, you know, for example, this platform we've got here because of, you know, it would be so much better to have it in person. We're having a great conversation, but there are certain cues that we're missing by not being in person. But on the flip side, the, imagine if there was an uncomfortable situation that you felt, I don't know, quite uh, uh, resistant to, we'll, use, we'll continue to use that word, resistant to, and then we're having it without any of the social clues, without any of the background, with any of the context, without of the humanity of this conversation. And then suddenly you're arguing and discussing something which one person feels so passionate about and so and had to deal with every day of their their living experience and another person who's never had to deal with it arguing the toss and so this is the first part stop trying to present logical and reasonable rebuttals to a consideration which is by design attached to feeling attached to reality attached to exhaustion attached to constant chronic stress which we all know is is in a, in a kind of medical sense and not the best thing to have so of course these discussions take a form where we have to be compassionate and balanced and ready to listen and I, I don't mean that you know just purely on you know on the other side of the spectrum I mean it on both sides and you know that's where the point has to start but if you are feeling stressed and it's something that's part of your reality, I completely understand why you emotionally would respond, you know, with the same passion if someone was to question it without ever really considering your entire argument or even having never having had to consider before you open that particular debate. And that's so much part of 
my experience and i'm you know it, it's great to have these conversations because you're listening and it's firing off certain ideas and I, I at least can be confident that those ideas are extensions of the types of conversation that we're having and so i feel part of the process i feel included because we're discussing it we're not saying this is right this is wrong we're saying this is how i interpreted it what do you it's collaborative that's the word i'm looking for right here's a thing let's talk about this thing and let's learn together yeah. through this thing it's collaborative that right collaboration is humanity it is a part of a whole collaboration is the cornerstone of how we overcome challenge because we always have this survival of the fittest stuff but survival of the fittest doesn't encompass humanity as far as I'm concerned. Survival of the fittest is one part of it. Collaboration is the big part we always miss of survival of the fittest. And humanity wouldn't be where it is now without the open forums and collaborations and discussions which make progression possible. And so that's exactly, exactly where we need to start. Beyond that, it needs to be... And by it, I mean these type of conversations. It needs to be sustained at all parts of life. Because if you come into a veterinary field and you are ready to have open conversations, et cetera, et cetera, it is an act, isn't it? It's an act of collaboration. It is an act because you are required of it in, as a veterinary professional to be considerate. However, I don't feel collaboration and seeing humanity in someone as an act. I see it as a characteristic it's not something you do, it's something you are. And that is so essential. Like you are not seeing humanity because you have to, but because it is part of your fabric. And the veterinary community needs to make collaboration and open discussion and compassion part of its fabric and its foundation. And I feel that is where we go from there. I guess the mechanisms of that can look like, you know, diversity and inclusion and panels and, you know, having people, you know, have things like animal aspirations and have myself and put myself in positions of, of, of I guess, for lack of better words, notoriety or, you know, all those things are important. But it won't help anyone else if you, all you see is my face doing everything, you know, or see Mandisa's face doing everything we need to actually understand that just because i had to work so hard and i guess some people would say that you've done so much you know you are a fantastic role model and you've done your you know you're so great at so many different topics that it's not okay to be absolutely i just want to be a vet and i want to go home and have a cup of tea without you know and i don't want to be on tv i don't want to write articles about discussing all sorts of things I just want to be able to be a vet without having to be questioned whether my humanity is under scrutiny. And that is what I'm fighting for. I'm not fighting for just the exceptionals. I'm, ex I'm fighting for people getting into veterinary medicine and being able to fail like any other vet student without it being some type of a form of, well, they are from this particular community. And as a result, they're less likely to, you know. It's a, it's a judgment on... Yeah, it's not just an isolated incident of a human being failing. Yeah, and, and you know what? Fate, I don't even recognize failure as itself, but the, we, we have to. That's a whole other conversation. But <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole yep. other conversation, 100%. And you know this. But the point is, is that my work 
is to create a space for people to be as honest and authentic. And if they want to be like everyone else and that's their choice, that's fine. If they want to be the kid who, you know, draws, I don't know, all sorts of crazy art in their spare time as a vet, that's fine. If you want whatever you want from this process, they are all subsidiaries to who you are and you should have the opportunity to be whoever you want to be as long as it's not infringing on anyone else. That's how I feel about it. I love it. I love it. So I just want to give that space for people (laughs) to have that in their head. You know, I don't really want to stop talking at all, but (laughs) I'm not very good at it either. But this is just, it's really, really useful and great conversation. Now I'm going to segue just in the interest of time over to just a couple of short form questions because I don't think, and maybe one final comment on that is that I, I know you said you're, you'll die happy, but I suspect that there is more to come. <laughs> and I'm not, I mean, I'm not 100% sure I entirely believe that because there's such passion in what you're saying. And actually, I think there would be great loss if that were to happen because I think there's great work yet to come and do. So let's move into our short form questions and I'm just going to toss a couple at you and one of them's a new one actually and you can choose to include or remove the word veterinary here but who are your veterinary heroes I think you're going to be a veterinary hero to many I'm curious about who <laughs> you're, you're are. Uh, okay my biggest hero is I'm going to say hero first my biggest hero is my mom and the reason why she's my biggest hero is, I think we've, t- we've touched on it before, but my, the reason why she's my biggest hero is because I never had to question the support for me to be whatever I wanted to be. And having her as a person, as a point of reference throughout my entire life to do that without ever questioning it is a gift that I've realised in my older life so many people have haven't had in one way or another when it comes to the animal world david attenborough now david attenborough is is the most stereotypical one but i love the fact someone was able to bring diversity of experience with animals to my home when i didn't have that and i think i was just so interested about so much i had stick insects and worms and snails and ant farms and you name it, I had it when I was a kid. And the most enjoyable part about watching those shows or having a worm farm or whatever in my house or on TV was being able to appreciate animals for who they are for themselves. And so David Attenborough is that. In a veterinary field, I will be honest with you, at a very young age, I enjoyed like Steve Irwin and things like that. But I think my relationship to how those shows are, you know, uh, has changed a little bit. But in veterinary, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I ever, ever had one. My heroes, you know, I have Marissa Robson and Navratnam Partheban, who were the BVEDS. But, you know, I would say my current inspo are the undergrads because the conversations that we're having, they're having in university 
and they're feeling brave and honest enough to talk about them. And I, that for me is the most energizing part because I just think to myself, you guys do not know how impressive it is to start up all these initiatives at your age and do veterinary medicine. So those are my, they are my current inspiration. You know, the, the students and the prospective vet students of the future. I love that answer. And I'm frequently blown away by what I'm seeing uh, students achieving. Now, some of the things you've spoken about, philosophy, mindfulness, or actually, sorry, Stoicism, Buddhism. If you were to recommend a book that's made the biggest impact on your life, what would that book be? Okay. I would say one of the best reads I've read recently is, it's by Frankel. Uh, F-R-A-N-K-L. And it's two books. One's called Man's Search for Meaning. And the other is by another by Frankel, which is The Unheard Cry for Meaning, Psychotherapy and Humanism. And both of those books, I think if you if you don't want the scientific side, you should read Man's Cry for Meaning because that's very accessible and open. If you don't want something heavy and you want to understand where you position yourself as a human. I think that's great. The Unheard Cry for Meaning is a lot more, there's a scientific platform for it. Both of those books really cemented how I, they were the, the missing piece of the puzzle for how I saw my day-to-day life, basically. Other books that I, I really recommend or people I recommend is Siddhartha by Herman Hess, which is, a, I guess, a, a classic of understanding, you know, the positions and, re- and understanding compassion, basically. I think it's just a great book. Another book, which I love, but is it is boring, but I, I recommend as a first foray into philosophy is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I think that is a great book, but you have to sit down with it, especially if you're new to philosophy, because the ideas of that, you have to settle with them to really understand what they mean. And you have to, de- you have to decipher them a little bit, but yeah, that is a really, really great book. And I would say the last one, which is the probably the most accessible book I've read, which is great for the most part. And I'll tell you why is inner engineering by Sadhguru. Now Sadhguru is a, is a person who is, you know, you can find him on YouTube. You don't have to read his book because pretty much what he says in the book is in his YouTube videos. It's all over the internet. He is someone who pulls so many different parts of some of the best parts of religion, some of the stoic parts of philosophy, and pulls them together into the most accessible book that has can have so much value. Now, there's a middle part of that where he talks about nutrition and about cycles. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm not so much a big fan on that. And so I would say you can read that book and skip over certain bits as well, which is completely fine. But the first half and the last couple chapters are you know, a- astounding, really. And it's really about how we as humans approach the idea of happiness and what I love about him is that it's accessible, but his idea of happiness is that happiness should be the start point. And we often go, oh, I want to be happy. I want this, you know, pleasurable moment. I want to be able to go on holiday for six months a year and, and just go through dopamine and serotonin and, mm-hmm. and you know, yep. back to back to back to back. 
And what he does is a quite a very um, a resounding reinterpretation of how we approach those situations. And I really like that book for someone who's just picking up something. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to be sat there researching articles. He doesn't need to, you know, have yeah, I don't know, an A, an A star at English literature. It's just a book that anyone can pick up. So, Sadguru in Enduring is, is is a great book as well. I love that. I'm gonna <laughs> just that, that's. I'm gonna add that to my pile. <laughs> and so, last question, yes. and and perhaps it's the last question for now is you are to be found on the socials at Dreadyvet. Uh, and Instagram seems to be a bit of a weapon of choice. So <laughs> if you could send an Instagram post or image to everyone, yeah, everyone in this world, what would it be? That is a tricky one. Of my posts or just any post or anything? You can post to anything oh, to that is so anyone. Difficult. You've, got, you've, got the ability, you've got a magic iPhone. You can <laughs> bring that message to every iPhone on the planet. I would post... I would say that something, maybe for one of those kind of like, you know, those, those posts with like words on or something, but I, I, it would be a post where you have done enough. Everything else from now is a bonus. That would be, you know, the quotes with the, with the shimmering sunset in the background. That would be yeah. what I would do. <laughs> that, would, that would be the post. And the reason why that would be my post is because the moment you realize that you do not have to be anything else or any more or any less than the person you have come to be, the moment your interpretation of everything changes, you can be just as happy, you know, sitting next to a tree on a cool day as opposed to be, as much as you can be on holiday in, I don't know, Kenya on a safari. And being able to be content in all those situations is, it's like, we're not going to be there all the time, but it is just the best feeling. It is the best feeling. You don't get caught up in how much you're being paid or your progression or anything. Things happen, not because they, they're going to always happen, but because you're okay with whatever the result is. So that would be the message of that post. Brilliant. Well, listen, we are, we are <laughs> alas out of time. And this has been one of uh, my favorite conversations, actually. Yay. So thank you very much, Fabian, for the time you spent, you know, educating me today. Congratulations on winning the British Veterinary Association Young Vet of the Year Award. It is abundantly clear to me why that happened. I really, I look forward to many, many more interactions with you. And, you know, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait till next time. Okay, folks. So before you head off, just a quick thank you from me for listening to the episode and a huge shout out to Fabian. Wasn't he just a brilliant guest? So articulate, so great at shining a light on a topic that we are all set to grapple with. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to him for that. And please show him some love on the socials. You can find him at DreadyVet. Now, if you're enjoying the show and you want us to continue making content, one of the best ways you can do that is by giving us a shout out on the iTunes platform. Leave us a review, give us a star rating, and that helps the show get found by more people. Until next time, from us all at Vetex International, be safe, be well, and be happy. <laughs>